great to see everybody this morning. Just a couple of announcements. Remember, your paperwork is over here. We have for you questions for next week. We have a few copies left for the questions for this week for your small group time. Um, but we also have our outline for the discussion today. And I just want to remind everybody, especially if you're a newcomer, that, that the outline that I provide <laughs> is really just sort of a reference point. Um, I, my, my uh, lectures tend to be a little bit more stream of consciousness, so you know, please remember that that is a courtesy, not a contract. If I don't cover everything on there today, uh, it is because I originally meant to, but heck, you know, you never know where this thing might go. Um, so it's, but it's great to have everybody here today. Wanted to let you know about a resource that I just discovered myself. I didn't even know that our media team had put this together. Um, we actually now are, in addition to pre uh, presenting the video of this lecture on the, on the church app, which you, if you have not yet put your church app on the phone, number, on, on your phone, number one, um, go ahead and download it, or two, get a phone that will handle it. Um, it's, it's just time to do that. Um, <laughs> But if, you, but if you want to, you can access this lecture through the media tab on the church app. And what I have just discovered is, and I actually found this out from somebody else, uh, that, that we have just started to uh, produce this lecture also in podcast form. So you can easily download it and listen to it at other times. I think that's a real advantage because that's just the audio, so you can listen to it to your car or, or things like that. I've often been told that I have a face for radio, and so if you say to yourself, I love the content, I love the subject matter, but I just can't stand to look at Bob, here you go. Here's your resource. So, so just please know that that's out there, and it is for you to, to use at, at, your, at your leisure, and we hope that that will be a valuable resource for you. Well, let's go ahead and let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for giving us this time today. And we ask that as you reveal yourself to us every day, you will reveal yourself to us, especially through the study of your word. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it is in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. So here's my question that I want to ask you today to begin with. How did you learn about God? You know, when did you learn about God, but how did you learn about God? Just very quickly, how did you first learn about God? Your parents, okay. A lot of us learned about God through our parents, yeah. How else? What are some other ways that you maybe learned about God? Sunday school. Sunday school. Oh, good. It's a good church crowd here. Good. <laughs> Sunday school. Good. All right. Who else? What else? Vacation Bible school. Good. Good. Some school teachers. That, okay, good. Any other ways? Ministers. Thank you, Pat. Um, Pat wins today, by the way. Pat wins Bible study. Um, anybody else? You know, last night when I asked this question, I had a, uh, I had a wonderful uh, a member of the group who told us a great story about her husband, uh, no, excuse me, not her husband, but her, her stepfather, who was wounded uh, at Iwo Jima and, was, I mean, shot up terribly. And he actually was not a practicing Christian or anything, but he had a vision of Jesus Christ while he was wounded uh, on the floor in this medical center in, at Iwo Jima. And that's how he came to learn about God. And, you know, we had another person tell a story last night about, about a friend who had learned about God uh, through uh, just discovering a Gideon's Bible in a hotel room. And, you know, that's you know, one of the things you will often hear from Gideons is that is that one of the reasons they still put Bibles in hotel rooms is because, uh, statistically speaking, that is one of the highest ranking places where people go to commit suicide. And so they, they make sure, they try as best they can to make sure there's a Bible in there because that has, there are so many testimonies of people who go in to a hotel room looking to end their life and they start reading that Gideon's Bible and something just, just comes to them. But on the, on the topic of visions, one of the things you've heard us say from the pulpit and in other, uh, other contexts here is that one of the most amazing things that's happening in the world right now is that in places like, um, well, places all over the Muslim world, but especially in Iran, people are just coming to Christ like crazy. And part of that is because of the teaching of the underground churches there. But another big thing that's happening in the Muslim world is that people are coming to Christ. They're coming to know God through visions. They're just direct 
contact. And it is just amazing how that just continues to happen. We tend to think that that's only something that happened in, in Bible times or in medieval times, but it's still, it's still happening. But, you know, I, just think about, you know, how did you get to know God? How did, you know, when did you really first come to that personal consciousness of God? When did you start to learn about Him beyond, say, for example, the, the simple knowledge of his, of his existence? Like, for example, th- there's never been a time in my life when I didn't believe in God. Because I, I grew up in a church family, grew up in a Presbyterian family, and, and I just, you know, I was... I went to Sunday school, all that kind of stuff. But I really didn't start to learn about God, to really know God beyond just sort of the Bible stories and information until I, uh, until I was in, in college and actually happened around a, a family tragedy. And, and that's when I really started to, to want to know more, to study more, and when, my, when my faith really took that next step of, of really knowing God better. Um, you know, there, we all have a different story of how we have learned about God. And I wanted to ask that question to set us up for our, for our study today. Today we're going to be looking at Psalm, one, at Psalm 19 and Psalm 145. And our topic for today, uh, as we study the life of David through the Psalms, is the topic of knowing God. You know, we've said that God's greatest gift to David was the gift of relationship. And we know that it was a relationship that produced poetry. But how did David get to know God? Well, let's start by taking a look at Psalm 19. You know, we, um, as we look at this psalm, uh, this psalm is not attached to any specific event in David's life. Rather, I believe it is a more mature, perhaps later in life reflection by David on the topic of revelation. Now, when I say revelation, I want you to understand what I'm saying. I'm not talking about the book of Revelation that appears at the end of the Bible. That is a specific revelation that came to the Apostle John on the island of Patmos. Uh, And by the way, please understand, one of my pet peeves is when people say revelations. It is the book of Revelation. It is one big revelation to John, so please... Uh, I, I will mark you off for that. Um, uh, matter of fact, one of my associate pastors did that just the other day, and uh, it was tough. Um, anyway, <laughs> also don't finish your sentences with at. It, another thing. Um, <laughs> but it's a, to- it's a meditation on the topic of revelation. What does that mean? It means the way that God reveals himself and reveals things to us. What, what Psalm 19, if we think about it again, we think about the Psalms not simply as doctrinal statements or poems or hymns for the worship of the people. This is David's personal prayer journal. And as David was writing Psalm 19, I believe that he was writing a personal reflection on what it means to know God. And, and the real affirmation within this Psalm is that God wants to be known. You know, we so often hear people calling themselves agnostics. And you know, agnostic, if, if, if I may write that word up here on the board for a second. The word agnostic is a compound word. Wait a minute. I brought a whole new pen today. Agnostic is a compound word. The word gnostic refers to knowledge. Just think about it. The Greeks replaced the, G with the, K, the K with a G. Actually, we replaced the G with a K, but um, agnostic means knowledge. A means like the opposite of. When you hear somebody say that they're an agnostic as opposed to an atheist, that means that they believe that, well, there might be a God, but we can't know anything about him. Well, what David is saying in Psalm 19 is, yes, there's not only a God, and God has gone to great lengths so that we would know about him. It's not somebody who just doesn't believe in God. It's like, this is somebody who, you know, God, he has said, God wants us to know about Him. And so that's the, that is the subject of Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is a poem about God's revelation to us. It's a psalm that deals with what philosophers call epistemology. Now what is epistemology? Epistemology is the philosophical word or term, technical term, for the science of explaining how we know what we know. Epistemology simply means how we know, or the study of how we know what we know. 
And for thousands of years, God has wanted uh, to teach people about himself in ways that they could understand. Now, theologians describe this process in two phases. The first phase, if you look on your outline, is called general revelation. And a general revelation is revelation, that is the revelation of God through nature or through the things that God has created. And the reason it's called general revelation is because it is available to anybody. Anybody can see it. The second phase of revelation is called special revelation, or we might call it supernatural revelation. And that is more of, the, of a more direct type of revelation. The, you know, when God tells us specific things in very direct ways. So you've got these two things, general revelation and supernatural revelation. So if you'll turn to Psalm 19, what we have here is a beautiful outline of these two concepts. Psalm 19, beginning in verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his changer, uh, chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. And you read those first few stanzas and those first few couplets, and, and it's all about, all about nature, just showing us the glory of God. Then he goes on, it sort of changes at verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can, discern all his, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from, my, from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now you'll see that in your outline today I have included another outline um, just, just so you can kind of break down that, that psalm and its own component parts, but we're not going to talk about that. Rather, we're going to get into this topic of how David presents this idea of knowing God. How does, how does David express in this psalm our knowledge of God and how we get to know God? Well, first, we see you know, that there are, there are two ways that we get to know God. The first is through what we call general revelation. General revelation is that is that revelation that comes through, it comes through, um, here we go, it comes through nature. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Now, what does this mean? What is this saying? It's saying that in creation, God has left the, the signs, the symbols, the indications of his creative work. So how many of you ever at camp or in, uh, in school at some point were in an art class or a craft class and made one of those little pinch pots? You know, you just a little pot or an ashtray, you squeeze it, you squeeze it, squeeze it, you give it to your, you give it to your uh, crafts teacher or your art teacher, she puts it in the kiln and you hope it doesn't blow up. Um, or if you're a boy, you hope it did. You know, it's always, always funny. She always said, don't leave an air bubble in it because it'll blow up. Why would they tell us that? So anyway, but the thing is, you're making this little pinch pot, you're making this little thing, and, and you know, I was always sort of a, I was always sort of weird about this. I, I didn't like that every time I would squeeze it and smooth it out, my fingerprints were still all over it. But, you know, and, and I would try to smooth it out and all that kind of, but it didn't matter. You, the fingerprints were still all over it. You could still see them. Um, now, I was trying to get rid of them all the time. I would take a little, you know, pasty, uh, paste knife and try to s smooth them out, but I could never quite get it. But God has not tried to get rid of or smooth out his fingerprints in creation. 
And what, what the scripture is telling us is that were it not for our sin, were it not for our confusion and distraction and, and honestly our, our rebellion, our desire not to be controlled or not to acknowledge God, we would see the, the fingerprints of God all over creation. And if we start to see the fingerprints of, a, of God, then we know that there is a creator to this creation. As a matter of fact, you can't have a creation without a creator. And so one of the things I want to say, first of all, is that, is that as we think about this, God reveals himself through creation, through the things that he has made. And, and, I, and I want that to be good news to you because that means that if you have ever been on a camping trip or you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, or you've ever been out in nature and you saw a sunrise or you saw a mountain range or you saw just this beautiful flower or bird unfolding and you said to yourself, oh my gosh, it's, that's so divine and so heavenly and you felt a supernatural presence, that does not make you a pagan, okay? It's okay. People, I think sometimes Christians feel like, well, if I, you know, if, if I make too much of nature, I'm, that means I'm worshiping nature. No, no, no. Paganism is when you worship nature. But when you appreciate the creator that created it, then we understand what God wants. And that is that God wants us to know him through his creation. And so, you know, as we think about that, I want you to, let's go back to the story of David. Why would David include, or why was natural revelation, why was general revelation so important to David? Let's go back to chapter 16 of 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel, we read that God sent the prophet Samuel to Bethlehem. The Lord said to Samuel, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And so Samuel went to Bethlehem to find the man that God had chosen to be king. And so then Jesse was told, bring out all of your sons so that I can look at him, not telling you why, but just I would like to meet all of your sons. So Jesse brought all of his sons to Samuel. And right off the bat, just right when they show up, straight out of the dugout, Samuel looks at these guys, he says, oh man, I know who it is. He sees Eliab. It says, when they came, he looked on Eliab, the son of Jesse, and he thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But what did the Lord say to Samuel? Nope, that's not him. So Samuel said, oh, well, all right. Well, then he looked at the next kid. He said, oh, wow, all right, maybe this is him. Again, the Lord, nope. And the next one, nope. And the next one, nope. And he's starting to get a little bit nervous probably because, you know, Jesse has a lot of sons, but he doesn't have an unlimited number of them. <laughs> and he's, no, 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 no. And God says, listen, Samuel, don't look at the appearance, uh, appearance or the height of his stature because I've rejected him, meaning Eliab and the others. For the Lord sees not as the man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So the next son was rejected and the next son was rejected. And finally, he comes to the end of the line and Samuel just, I would imagine, sort of dejected, turns to Jesse and said, are all your sons here? I mean, because I'm pretty sure I got clear instructions from the God who knows everything, and, and, and I'm not finding the one that, that I'm supposed to find. And Jesse said, well, yeah, I've got one more, but he's the youngest, and he is out keeping the sheep. You know, I mean, yeah, I, the Lord tells Samuel to anoint Jesse's youngest son, you know, but who is Jesse's youngest son? He's the run of the litter. I mean, yeah, the Bible tells us he's a good-looking kid, but in Jesse's estimation, he was so far down the ladder, so insignificant, that he was not even worth, worth pulling off a sheep duty when the prophet visited. Now, it's interesting. Again, think about that. There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. David began his life as a simple shepherd. And although we know nothing about David's early childhood before he makes his first appearance in 1 Samuel 16. We know a lot about shepherds. And one thing that we know about shepherds is that they spend a lot of time outside. And they spend a lot of nights under the stars because you don't just leave the sheep at night. As a matter of fact, that's one of the times when they are most vulnerable. And you know, before 
Samuel ever arrived on Jesse's doorstep, David had already experienced God's revelation. Every night, David would sit under the stars, he would play his lyre, just throw rocks, listen to the sheep, look at the, look at the space around him, and something was moving him. You know, we, this is actually a picture from, taken from the Hubble Space Telescope. Um, I actually met the director of the Hubble Space Telescope Project at one point. This is a guy who got to see things uh, that nobody else had ever seen because he was like the first person who would get to see the pictures from the telescope. So he was one of the people who got to see those things first, first human eyes to see these things. You know where I met him? I met him in a Christian youth conference. The guy's, the guy's a believer. He's, you know, people like to say that scientists aren't believers and things like that. No, no, no. I've known too many to believe that. But, you know, here, you know, this is the kind of thing, you know, this maybe not Hubble telescope level, but can you imagine the light show that David got to see every night? I mean, this is way before the days of light pollution. We have to go all the way out to West Texas, you know, to McDonald Observatory in that area if we want a real view of the stars. I mean, I mean, the stars are bright. They are big and bright deep in the heart of Texas. But... It's still not as good as the view that David would have gotten on any given night. And every night, David would see this incredible light show above him, and something moved in him, something pulled him. And later in his life, when he's writing this psalm, he says, I knew, just looking up there, that there was more even than the words that I had heard explained. Just kind of like the music that goes along with the lyrics of a song. It enhances, and it blows up, and amplifies the presence of God. We call that general revelation when, when we have that sense of God from the things that he's created. One of my mentors, Dr. Ben Lacey Rose, once preached this. He said, I believe in God because the complexity and the beauty of the physical world point to an intelligent creator. Only the mind prepared with intellectual excuses and in denial about real evidence can deny that there is a creator of this world. It and we are no accidental assortment of chemicals and mutations. And if we will only listen, nature itself, by its wonder, its sublime balance, its unity and variety, and its awesomeness, cries out that there is a God behind it all. This is not just simply a philosophical idea. This is also something that is confirmed in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 1, Paul writes this, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Now, please understand that last line there too. So that they are without excuse. Paul is not saying if you're really smart and sophisticated, you might catch this. He's saying, no, 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 creation is designed to reveal the glory of God. And it's not our stupidity or our, 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 our lack of education that hides it from us. It's our rebellion. It's our sinfulness. It's our rejection and our will to independence and our distraction. All that stuff that we call sin. Because honestly, we have no excuse. God has left so many fingerprints all over this little pinch pot called creation that we should have no excuse but to accept that, he is, that there is a creator. And then as if creation itself were not enough, if we have the courage to admit it, our experience, our own experience, tells us that there's more to life than this material reality. You don't have to be a Christian to have the experience of the divine, to have the experience of God in the world. You may, you may not know what to call it, but think about it. Have you ever felt in the midst of danger that you suddenly were cared for or protected? You know, have you ever feared a crisis in your personal life, but when it comes, you experience a sudden, unexplainable calm? Think about this. A stranger makes you feel a sudden rush of love for no apparent reason. When a critical care patient sees the light of glory in a, dear, a near-death experience. Looking up in the sky, you have a sense of infinite space. Or a sudden glimpse of beauty that makes you forget for a second where you are. You know that a prayer has been answered and you know that it's not coincidence. Or you've been all by yourself, yet you know that you are not alone. 
That is God's general, His natural revelation. Don't, don't belittle it by calling it general revelation. That means the, the breadth of it, not the beauty of it. So that's what, that's what David wants us to, to know. He's like, he's like, yes, I have studied God's word. I have, I, have, I have been instructed by some of the best priests and prophets of the, of the ages. But God was showing himself to me while I was a shepherd out on watch just through the beauty of his creation and the stars that he hung in the sky. He wanted us to know we can see God's fingerprints all over creation. But that's not the, not the end of God's revelation. Because we can see God's fingerprints all over creation. But that doesn't tell us a whole lot about the Creator other than that there is a Creator. And the truth is, we look at God's creation, we see the fingerprints, and sometimes we just get it wrong. As real as the natural evidences of God are, the picture of God that one gets from nature and experience can get confused. Because our signals can get crossed and contradictory. Natural disasters happen to good people. Justice goes unserved. You know, that's why also people from different parts of the world, different cultures, they have a sense that there's a God, but, but the God that they envision is so different in one religion, one culture to the next. Because they've got, they know that there is a God there in creation. They know there's something beyond just what they can see. And yet, they, they're just doing their best through their sinful eyes to, to put it together. And, we, and, it, and as humans, we come up with very interesting things. And what happens is we get stuck in the practice of idolatry. Now, what is idolatry? Idolatry means simply to put something created in the place of the Creator. And whereas natural revelation is supposed to point us to God, we get stuck on the medium of revelation. And so Paul says this. Paul says this in continuing in Romans. He says, For although they knew God, in other words, although they perceived God, sensed God in creation, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images re resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, they were right to perceive God in creation, but they stopped looking at the creation as a gift of God and started looking at creation as God. That it's not, it's not, the, you know, it's not the sun that shows God's handiwork. It is the sun that is God. It is the sea that is God. It is this bird that is God. It is this person, you know, your Roman emperor or dictator, who is God. It is the self who is God. And we get twisted, we get turned off of the understanding of who the true God is. And so general revelation is enough to give us, even without excuse, the knowledge that there is a God. But it doesn't tell us who this God is or what He expects or what He wants for us and from us. And that's where special revelation comes in. God has provided us with a more accurate way of knowing Him. Psalm 19.7 says this, if I may, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. God has given us a special revelation, a type of specific revelation that is much more direct. Special revelation re refers to God's supernatural, extraordinary, extraordinary disclosure of, of secret, hidden, or otherwise unknown or unknowable things. Now what that means, again, to take it away from a definition standpoint, you know, there are certain things that I can learn by just looking at you but I'm going to be more accurate in my understanding if you tell me the facts behind your life. So I could look at you and if you've got a, you know, if you've got a tan, I could say, oh, you know, maybe she's been to the beach. But it may be that you've been skiing in Colorado. You know, and I'm not going to know that unless you tell me that. Again, I can, I can make all kinds of assumptions and I can infer things from the clues I see, but I'm going to get it wrong. And so God has provided for us a medium or, or media through which He gives us direct information. Again, think about it this way. Um, I can look at a picture of you and learn some things. Or I can look at 
I can look at or I can read a letter from you or your resume and I'll learn much more specific and correct information. So, so again, it's, it's a different type of revelation. Both are valid. You know, the picture is still accurate, but I just may draw, draw the wrong conclusions. But those two types of media are ways that God reveals himself. Let's talk about the three types, really, of special revelation. Um, if we look at Hebrews chapter 1, um, he, uh, the writer of Hebrews makes this comment. He says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. You know, how, are the, how has God revealed himself? What is God's special revelation? Well, it comes basically in three ways. First, God has revealed himself through his word. And we say that when we say his word, we mean those words that he gave through the law and to the prophets. The Torah given to Moses and through the prophets like Isaiah. We get his word also through the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, but also through prophets like Elijah and Samuel. You know, many of those words were recorded as scripture. We hear often the tagline, thus says the Lord. This means this is the word of God. This is his special revelation coming to us. So we, God revealed himself through his word. We also know that God revealed himself through his word made flesh. Not just his word verbal or written, but his word made flesh. Now, who is his word made flesh? It's Jesus Christ. Exactly. Colossians says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Again, Hebrews says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Those are those two verses if you want to look at those. But Jesus Christ is what God wants us to know about himself. If you want to know what God looks like, who God really is, look at Jesus Christ because that's what he wants you to know about him. You can make all kinds of other crazy conjectures. But God says, okay, well, you know, but this is who I have shown myself to be. So let's add another layer to that. On the one hand, I can look at a picture of you and learn some things. Or I can read a letter that you write, or I can read your resume and learn more specific details. Or guess what? I can also sit down with you face to face and you can tell me about yourself. And when I make a mistake, you can correct me. And, and, as I, and I can just hear the stories and I can hear everything and I can see your mannerisms and... That's what, Jesus, that's what God did in Jesus Christ. He put himself in flesh form so that we could talk to him face to face. And that deepest, that, that best. You know, you know, remember the, the Hebrew way of amplification. You know, we say good, better, best. They would say good, good, good. Jesus is the good, good, good way of God's revelation. Like holy, holy, holy. Good, good, good. The best revelation of God. The third way that we know uh, that we know God, that God has revealed Himself, is through His Holy Spirit. You know, Jesus said, These things I've spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Holy Spirit takes, takes what God wants us to know about Him and puts them through, through authors, through writers, into the written form of his word. He did it through the prophets in the Old Testament, but he also did it through the written form and the Torah and the Psalms and the prophets all these times. But he put, you know, when God uses the Holy Spirit to put his word through and into people and through people so that they can then communicate it. So that's kind of like, you know, the Holy Spirit tells, you know, you know, speaks to this person and says, you know, I want you to tell, I, I, you know, I want Dan to tell Ann about Bob. Here's, but, he, but I'm going to make sure you do it right. But, Anne, but Dan is going to say it in Dan's words and in Dan's terms. But the Holy Spirit is the one making sure that the information is correct. That's what we call the inspiration of Scripture. And we'll come back to that in, as, as a topic in just a minute. But the Holy Spirit speaks in that way, not only through the writers of Scripture, but also through visions and things like that later on in history. So... So we have, you know, we've got these different types of communication. Well, let's see how that applies to David. Now, did David have a Bible? You know, did he have a written record of the, of the words of the prophets and of, of the Torah, of the law? Yes, David's Bible was the Torah. Well, so how did he learn it? Well, how did, how did David learn the Bible? How did he learn his, his Bible stories? The same way we did, through his parents. 
Jesse and his mother did what good parents, good Jewish parents were supposed to do. Deuteronomy says this, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them to your, diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. David's parents taught him from an early age the stories of his people and the stories of his people's God. So David learned the Torah from a very early age. And not just that, he didn't learn it just through lessons. You know, at this point, we don't know yet if David is literate. Uh, you know, even if he was, there's so few actual scrolls around. You know, most of this was probably done orally. But, you know, he didn't just learn it in, in terms of prose, he learned it in terms of song. What was David out there doing? While he was looking at the stars and while he was uh, taking care of the sheep, he was probably out there doing what? To kill time. Playing his harp. Singing the songs of faith. How many of you learned something about God by singing, singing songs? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Holy, holy, holy. Um, you know, <laughs> you know uh, I mean, all those little Sunday school songs that we know, they had those too. They had those songs, the songs of Moses, the songs of Miriam. Those songs were there, and he was, he was singing. Not sure, I'm sure every now and then he sang like a good old Hebrew country song that shepherds sing, but, but I think for the most part he was probably singing these songs of his people's faith that carried the words of the Torah within them. And so he had God's word you know, as, as the foundation of his faith, but he also had a, another incredible resource. David also had two prophets heavily involved in his, in his life. First was Samuel, and I think that Samuel's job was initially to anoint David, but I think his real job was to instruct and train David for one day leading the people of God. I mean, he's got a, a, a prophet as his personal tutor. And so, David, so Samuel is constantly giving him the word of the Lord. He's constantly teaching him the correct understanding of the Torah. And then third... Is the direct contact of the Holy Spirit. We read in, uh, in 1 Samuel 16, beginning in the 13th verse, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. Well, that's great. But then listen to what happened. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. The Holy Spirit came upon David. The Holy Spirit that came on him that way and stayed with him in caves and rocks when he was in exile and on the battlefield and in all those situations where he needed the presence of the Lord, he was with him. And he was with him even as he wrote the Psalms that we're going to be reading this semester, including this one. The Holy Spirit that came upon David that day is the same Holy Spirit that inspired the words that we, write, that we read in the book of Psalms and other places. Indeed, the Holy Spirit came directly to David. Now, as we think about that, especially as we talk about the, the writings of David, let's, let's take a second just to think about what that means for us. You know, David was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he, he wrote these words for us. And those words are part of our Bible. Now, what is the Bible? The Bible, when we really think about special revelation, the Bible in the Reformed, the Presbyterian, and the Protestant sense, it is the first among equals, first among all source of our revelation. Because it is the one that is both general, to, you know, everybody can read it, anybody can read it, but it's also special in that it is very specific. The Bible is, is really the primary source of God's special revelation to us. Because the Bible helps us to take all of those things that we see in nature and human nature and understand them rightly. The Bible helps us to clarify and interpret nature and our experience by telling us what God wants us to know about His creation and nature. John Calvin compared the Bible to a pair of glasses, a pair of spectacles to a bleary-eyed man. Right now, taking these off, I can still see you, but you're all kind of blurry. And that's because, so the analogy would be that without, you know, without my glasses, I'm just looking at the world through the weak lenses of my eyes, the broken, weak, mortal lenses of my sinful eyes. But I put on the lenses of Scripture and things clear up. I see things more clearly. Of course, 
I could still, you know, I can still tell that, that Anne is Anne and that Sandy is Sandy and that Linda is Linda and Emily is Emily. But, you know, if I got much farther back, watch me on Sunday morning. Um, you know, it's, I can, it, it, it's, it's a lot tougher. But what Calvin is saying is we need Scripture to see properly all those clues that God has put into creation. A contemporary uh, English minister, evangelist Nicky Gumbel, compares the Bible to something else. He compares it to a television antenna. Now, what does a television antenna do? A television antenna takes all of those TV signals, all of those signals that are floating around in the air that, that you know, can be detected, but it, it pulls them together and it focuses them so that we can get a, an intelligible picture on the TV. So what it does is, it, so the, the Bible takes all of that power, all of that energy, takes all of those things and brings it together into a, into a coherent picture that then becomes clear to us. 20th century uh, theologian uh, Emil Brunner from Switzerland explains it this way. He says that there are two books of God's revelation. The first, he says, is the book of nature. People of all ages, even when they have not known the Creator, have had presentiments of Him. There's no religion in which there is not some source or surmise about the Creator. But men have never known Him rightly simply from the book of nature. The book of nature does not suffice to reveal the Creator aright to such unintelligent and obdurate pupils as ourselves. The Creator has therefore given us another, even more clearly written book in which to know Him, called the Bible. The church, especially the Protestant church, has always understood that the way we get to know God is through the Word of God. I can look at your picture all day, but if you tell me what you want me to know about you, that is the ultimate source of our knowledge. You know, you can look at me all day, and you might be able to judge some things about me, but you might not know certain things about me until I tell you where I went to college, where I, you know, where I grew up, the names of my parents, all of those types of things. We believe that what God wants us to know about Himself, what is critical for us to know about Himself, comes through Scripture. And that is so important because when we're talking about Scripture, when we're talking about the inspiration of Scripture, we're talking about God's Word to us. And we use the word, God, we use the word inspired. The word inspired is actually a translation of this word. Theopneus. It's, again, a compound word. Theo, which means what? God. Did anybody recognize this word? Specifically this part of the word. Pnu. Anybody recognize that? Huh? Air. Yeah, like, like what? Like pneumonia. Like pneumonia. Pneumatic. Breath. It is the word that means breath. It's also the word in Greek that means spirit. The word for spirit in Greek is it's the same word for breath and spirit. Interestingly, also the same in Hebrew. In Hebrew, the word for breath is ruach. In Greek, the word is ruach. So when we're talking about the spirit of God or the breath of God, we're talking about the ruach Elohim. Also interesting, it also carries over to both Chinese and Japanese as well. Um, chi means breath and spirit. There's a deep connection between these two things. And when theologians talk about the scriptures being inspired, what they mean is they are God-breathed. Now often, you know, and this is really kind of a matter of perspective, most of the time when people are thinking about the inspiration of scripture, they're thinking about, oh, well, it's, you know, that, it's that the, the writers of scripture were inspired in the sense that they breathed in the revelation of God. But really, the, 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 more, the more specific use of this word is not God breathed in the sense of inhalation, like I'm breathing in the word of God. It's more God is breathing out his word. And we say inspired, but it should really be expired. That the Bible is the expired word of God. That he is exhaling that into the people that he is going to use to communicate it. So inspiration, when we talk about the inspiration of Scripture, we're not talking about like the inspiration that we get from a sunset or that you would get from a, a, you know, a beautiful man, a beautiful woman or a handsome man or you know, romantic inspiration. We're talking about what God has sent out. 
And so what David is telling, what we know about David is that David received the Holy Spirit and therefore the words that he got, even about the, even the words about knowing God that we receive from him are not just about God, they are from God. That's the big, that's the big takeaway and the whole discussion of the inspiration of Scripture. You know, we believe that the Bible is not just a book about God. We believe that the Bible is a book from God. Or rather, it's a, it is literature. It is a bunch of different writings from God. And therefore, there is a unity in the Scripture because of that. So when Paul says, all Scripture is breathed out by God, all Scripture is inspired by God, he is saying that all Scripture comes from God. Both David's Bible and ours. Both of these things are connected. It is a supernatural book. And so, so you know, these are, you know, this is what Davis wants us to know is that revelation, whether it's general or special, comes from God. Now, I want to, uh, and, and let me say this one, I'm going to move on very quickly. This is, special revelation is critical to us because special revelation tells us the things about God that we are not going to figure out on our own. Nature is not going to tell us about His covenant with the people. He's not going to tell us, it's not going to tell us about His grace in forgiving our sins. It's not going to tell us about His Son who took on flesh so that He could, so that he could atone for our sins. It's not going to tell us about His grace. It's not going to tell us those things. And that's why we need special revelation to tell us the things that we're not just going to figure out on our own in nature. Um, whether it's things about us, or whether it's stuff about God or whether it's things about ourselves. Herman Bavink, the great, uh, the great Dutch theologian, wrote this, General revelation cannot explain the greatest contradictions in man. It, only, it reckons only with his greatness and not with his mis misery, or only with his misery and not with his greatness. It exalts him too high or depresses him too far, for science does not know of his divine origin. General revelation does not know of his profound fall, but the scriptures know of both. And they shed their light over man and over mankind. And the contradictions are reconciled. The mists are cleared and the hidden things are revealed. Man is an enigma whose solution can only be found in God. So general revelation is the first step, but special revelation is that antenna. It is this that pair of glasses that helps us see what God really wants us to know. So, turning to our second psalm very briefly. As we read this psalm, as you, especially as you read Psalm 19, you begin to understand that David's faith was not simply a head knowledge. It's also a heart knowledge. So, if we look at the beginning words of Psalm 145, you know, we begin to see that David's faith was a deep-felt heart knowledge of affection and passion. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. For David, the only rational response to the knowledge of God is worship. If we really know who God is, and if we really have a clear vision, a clear understanding of what God has revealed, then we have no choice but to worship Him. Now, mark this carefully. Worship does not necessarily mean that we love Him immediately. It could also be abject terror initially, but if we know the whole gospel, we know of God's great grace even to the greatest of sinners. But we read even in Philippians where, where Paul says that, that Jesus Christ has been so highly exalted and the name upon him that has been bestowed upon him is the name above every name such that every knee should bow, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now think about that. Not just, every, not just every knee should bow and tongue confess on earth or in heaven, but even under the earth. That means that one day, even the population of hell will worship Jesus Christ for who He is. 
When we understand, when we truly know who God is, we have no choice but to worship Him. And in David's case, the rational response to the knowledge of God, especially when we know His great grace, is to love Him. To David, the connection between knowledge and love was inseparable. Think about this. You know, if you get really involved in a hobby, if you really find a passion for something, don't you want to learn everything you can about it? Don't you want to know everything you can about it? Guys, I'm speaking to you because, ladies, I don't know how you operate. You're an enigma to me, but guys, don't we know? It's, you know, when you, catch that, when you catch that first vision and it's love at first sight or whatever it is, and you fall in love with a lady, you want to find everything out about her that you can. You know, if you were in, I remember when I first met Morgan, I just fell head over heels in love with her. I wanted to know her class schedule. I wanted to know what dorm she lived in, all that kind of stuff. Thank goodness we didn't have the Internet because that could have taken a really creepy turn. <laughs> All I'm saying is that when, we fall, when you fall in love, you want to find out everything you possibly can about a person, and the more you learn, the more you love them. To David, there was this inseparable knowledge, or this inseparable connection between knowledge and love, to know and to love. The Bible even uses that word knowledge to represent that most intimate of physical connections, as in, Adam knew his wife Eve. You know, it, it is so, the, the concept is so inseparable. And David is saying to us in Psalm 145, and why I tied it to Psalm 19, is that when we really do know God, we will love Him and we will worship Him. And the more we learn about God, the more we will love Him. So this week our lecture and next week our lecture go together because the knowledge of God and the love of God and the knowledge of ourselves and, the love of, uh, and, and knowing God's love for us are the foundation not only of our faith, but they are a vital connection or they're vitally connected in the theology and the testimony of David. David's love for God was based on his knowledge of God and his knowledge of God came from his love of God and God's love for him. You've heard me say before that the, that the opening lines of John Calvin's most famous work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, are this, that all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, come from this, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. This week we've talked about how we know God. Next week we're going to talk about how God knows us. And so... I'll leave you with that for next week. Let's pray. Thank you, O Lord, for giving us this time to study you. And we thank you that you have, you have given us so many ways to know you. And most of all, we thank you, Lord, that you want to be known. You, you want us to know you through your word. You want us to know, what, know you through your creation. And you want us to know you through your son, Jesus Christ. And we ask, O Lord, that you would use your Holy Spirit to confirm that knowledge in us. Now, Lord, as we go forth from here, help us to grow in our knowledge of you that we may grow in our love for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much. Have a great day.